0: Section One of Discourses Biological and Geological by Thomas Huxley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. On a piece of chalk, a lecture delivered to the working men of Norwich during the meeting of the British Association, eighteen sixty-eight. If a well was sunk at our feet in the midst of the city of Norwich the diggers would very soon find themselves at work in that white substance almost too soft to be called rock, which we are all familiar with as chalk. Not only here, but over the whole county of Norfolk, the well-sinker might carry his shaft down many hundred feet without coming to the end of the chalk, and on the sea-coast, where the waves have pared away the face of the land which breasts them, the scarped faces of the high cliffs are often wholly formed of the same material. Northward, the chalk may be followed as far as Yorkshire. On the south coast it appears abruptly in the picturesque western bays of Dorset and breaks into the needles of the Isle of Wight, while on the shores of Kent it supplies that long line of white cliffs, to which England owes her name of Albion. Were the thin soil which covers it all washed away, a curved band of white chalk, here broader and there narrower, might be followed diagonally across England from Lulworth in Dorset to Flamborough Head in Yorkshire, a distance of over two hundred and eighty miles as the crow flies. From this band to the North Sea on the east and the channel on the south, the chalk is largely hidden by other deposits, but, except in the weald of Kent and Sussex, it enters into the very foundation of all the southeastern counties. Attaining, as it does in some places, a thickness of more than a thousand feet, the English chalk must be admitted to be a mass of considerable magnitude. Nevertheless, it covers but an insignificant portion of the whole area occupied by the chalk formation of the globe, much of which has the same general characters as ours and is found in detached patches, some less and others more extensive than the English. Chalk occurs in north-west Ireland. It stretches over a large part of France, the chalk which underlies Paris being in fact a continuation of that of the london basin it runs through denmark and central europe and extends southward to north africa while eastward it appears in the crimea and in syria and may be traced as far as the shores of the sea of aral in central asia if all the points at which the true chalk occurs were circumscribed they would lie within an irregular oval about 3,000 miles in long diameter, the area of which would be as great as that of Europe, and would many times exceed that of the largest inland sea, the Mediterranean. Thus the chalk is no unimportant element in the masonry of the earth's crust, and it impresses a peculiar stamp varying with the conditions to which it is exposed on the scenery of the districts in which it occurs. The undulating downs and rounded coombs, covered with sweet grassed turf of our inland chalk country have a peacefully domestic and mutton-suggesting prettiness, but can hardly be called either grand or beautiful. But on our southern coasts, the wall-sided cliffs many hundred feet high, with vast needles and pinnacles standing out in the sea, sharp and solitary enough to serve as perches for the weary cormorant, confer a wonderful beauty and grandeur upon the chalk headlands. And in the east, chalk has its share in the formation of some of the most venerable of mountain ranges, such as the Lebanon what is this widespread component of the surface of the earth and whence did it come you may think this no very hopeful inquiry you may not unnaturally suppose that the attempt to solve such problems as these can lead to no result save that of entangling the inquirer in vague speculations incapable of refutation and of verification if such were really the case i should have selected some other subject than a piece of chalk for my discourse but in truth after much deliberation i have been unable to think of any topic which would so well enable me to lead you to see how solid is the foundation upon which some of the most startling conclusions of physical science rest a great chapter of the history of the world is written in the chalk few passages in the history of man can be supported by such an overwhelming mass of direct and indirect evidence as that which testifies to the truth of the fragment of the history of the globe which I hope to enable you to read with your own eyes tonight. Let me add that few chapters of human history have a more profound significance for ourselves. I weigh my words well when I assert that the man who should know the true history of the piece of chalk which every carpenter carries about in his breeches pocket, though ignorant of all other history, is likely, if he will think his knowledge out to its ultimate results, to have a truer and therefore a better conception of this wonderful universe and of man's relation to it, than the most learned student who is deep-read in the records of humanity and ignorant of those of nature. The language of the chalk is not hard to learn, not nearly so hard as latin if you only want to get at the broad features of the story it has to tell and i propose that we now set to work to spell that story out together we all know that if we burn chalk the result is quicklime chalk in fact is a compound of carbonic acid gas and lime and when you make it very hot, the carbonic acid flies away and the lime is left. By this method of procedure, we see the lime, but we do not see the carbonic acid. If, on the other hand, you were to powder a little chalk and drop it into a good deal of strong vinegar, there would be a great bubbling and fizzing, and finally, a clear liquid in which no sign of chalk would appear. Here you see the carbonic acid in the bubbles. The lime dissolved in the vinegar vanishes from sight. There are a great many other ways of showing that chalk is essentially nothing but carbonic acid and quicklime. Chemists enunciate the results of all the experiments which prove this by stating that chalk is almost wholly composed of carbonate of lime. It is desirable for us to start from the knowledge of this fact, though it may not seem to help us very far towards what we seek. for carbonate of lime is a widely spread substance, and is met with under very various conditions. All sorts of limestones are composed of more or less pure carbonate of lime. The crust which is often deposited by waters which have drained through limestone rocks in the form of what are called stalagmites and stalactites, is carbonate of lime. Or, to take a more familiar example, the fur on the inside of a tea kettle is carbonate of lime. And for anything chemistry tells us to the contrary, the chalk might be a kind of gigantic fur upon the bottom of the earth kettle, which is kept pretty hot below but let us try another method of making the chalk tell us its own history to the unassisted eye chalk looks simply like a very loose and open kind of stone but it is possible to grind a slice of chalk down so thin that you can see through it until it is thin enough in fact to be examined with any magnifying power that may be thought desirable a thin slice of the fur of a kettle might be made in the same way if it were examined microscopically it would show itself to be a more or less distinctly laminated mineral substance and nothing more but the slice of chalk presents a wholly different appearance when placed under the microscope the general mass of it is made up of very minute granules but. Embedded in this matrix are innumerable bodies, some smaller and some larger, but on a rough average not more than a hundredth of an inch in diameter, having a well-defined shape and structure. A cubic inch of some specimens of chalk may contain hundreds of thousands of these bodies, compacted together with incalculable millions of the granules. The examination of a transparent slice gives a good notion of the manner in which the components of the chalk are arranged and of their relative proportions but by rubbing up some chalk with a brush in water and then pouring off the milky fluid so as to obtain sediments of different degrees of fineness the granules and the minute round bodies may be pretty well separated from one another and submitted to microscopic examination, either as opaque or as transparent objects. By combining the views obtained in these various methods, each of the rounded bodies may be proved to be a beautifully constructed calcareous fabric made up of a number of chambers communicating freely with one another. The chambered bodies are of various forms. One of the commonest is something like a badly grown raspberry being formed of a number of nearly globular chambers of different sizes congregated together. It is called Globigerina, and some specimens of chalk consist of little else than Globigerina and granules. Let us fix our attention upon the Globigerina, it is the spore of the game we are tracking. If we can learn what it is and what are the conditions of its existence we shall see our way to the origin and past history of the chalk. A suggestion which may naturally enough present itself is that these curious bodies are the result of some process of aggregation which has taken place in the carbonate of lime that just as in winter the rime on our windows simulates the most delicate and elegantly arborescent foliage proving that mere mineral water may under certain conditions assume the outward form of organic bodies so this mineral substance carbonate of lime hidden away in the bowels of the earth has taken the shape of these chambered bodies I am not raising a merely fanciful and unreal objection. Very learned men in former days have even entertained the notion that all the formed things found in rocks are of this nature. And if no such conception is at present held to be admissible, it is because long and varied experience has now shown that mineral matter never does assume the form and structure we find in fossils. If anyone were to try to persuade you that an oyster shell, which is also chiefly composed of carbonate of lime, had crystallised out of seawater, I suppose you would laugh at the absurdity. Your laughter would be justified by the fact that all experience tends to show that oyster shells are formed by the agency of oysters, and in no other way. And if there were no better reasons, we should be justified on like grounds in believing that the globigerina is not the product of anything but vital activity. Happily, however, better evidence in proof of the organic nature of the globigerina than that of analogy is forthcoming. It so happens that calcareous skeletons exactly similar to the globigerina of the chalk. Are being formed at the present moment by minute living creatures which flourish in multitudes literally more numerous than the sands of the seashore over a large extent of that part of the earth's surface which is covered by the ocean the history of the discovery of these living globigerinae and of the part which they play in rock building is singular enough it is a discovery which like others of no less scientific importance, has arisen incidentally out of work devoted to very different and exceedingly practical interests. When men first took to the sea, they speedily learned to look out for shoals and rocks, and the more the burthen of their ships increased, the more imperatively necessary it became for sailors to ascertain with precision the depth of the waters they traversed out of this necessity grew the use of the lead and sounding line and ultimately marine surveying which is the recording of the form of coasts and of the depth of the sea as ascertained by the sounding lead upon charts at the same time it became desirable to ascertain and to indicate the nature of the sea bottom since this circumstance greatly affects its goodness as holding-ground for anchors. Some ingenious tar, whose name deserves a better fate than the oblivion into which it has fallen, attained this object by arming the bottom of the lid with a lump of grease, to which more or less of the sand or mud or broken shells, as the case might be, adhered, and was brought to the surface. But however well-adapted such an apparatus might be for rough nautical purposes, scientific accuracy could not be expected from the armed lead and to remedy its defects, especially when applied to sounding in great depths. Lieutenant Brooke of the American Navy some years ago invented a most ingenious machine by which a considerable portion of the superficial layer of the sea bottom can be scooped out and brought up from any depth to which the lead descends. In 1853, Lieutenant Brooke obtained mud from the bottom of the North Atlantic between Newfoundland and the Azores, at a depth of more than 10,000 feet, or two miles, by the help of this sounding apparatus. The specimens were sent for examination to Ehrenberg of Berlin and to Bailey of West Point and those able microscopists found that this deep sea mud was almost entirely composed of the skeletons of living organisms, the greater proportion of these being just like the globigerinae already known to occur in the chalk. Thus far the work has been carried on simply in the interests of science, but Lieutenant Brooke's method of sounding acquired a high commercial value when the enterprise of laying down the telegraph cable between this country and the United States was undertaken. For it became a matter of immense importance to know not only the depth of the sea over the whole line along which the cable was to be laid, but the exact nature of the bottom so as to guard against chances of cutting or fraying the strands of that costly rope the admiralty consequently ordered captain damon an old friend and shipmate of mine to ascertain the depth over the whole line of the cable and to bring back specimens of the bottom in former days, such a command as this might have sounded very much like one of the impossible things which the young prince in the fairy tales is ordered to do before he can obtain the hand of the princess. However, in the months of June and July 1857, my friend performed the task assigned to him with great expedition and precision without so far as i know having met with any reward of that kind the specimens of atlantic mud which he procured were sent to me to be examined and reported upon footnote see appendix to captain damon's deep sea soundings in the north atlantic between ireland and newfoundland made an hms cyclops published by order of the lords commissioners of the admiralty eighteen fifty eight. They have since formed the subject of an elaborate memoir by Mrs Parker and Jones, published in the Philosophical Transactions for 1865. End of footnote. The result of all these operations is that we know the contours and the nature of the surface soil covered by the North Atlantic for a distance of 1,700 miles from east to west as well as we know that of any part of the dry land. It is a prodigious plain, one of the widest and most even plains in the world. If the sea were drained off, you might drive a wagon all the way from Valencia on the west coast of Ireland to Trinity Bay in Newfoundland. And except upon one sharp incline about 200 miles from Valencia, I am not quite sure that it would even be necessary to put the skid on; so gentle are the ascents and descents upon that long route. From Valencia, the road would lie downhill for about two hundred miles to the point at which the bottom is now covered by seventeen hundred fathoms of seawater. Then would come the central plain, more than a thousand miles wide the inequalities of the surface of which would hardly be perceptible, though the depth of water upon it now varies from 10,000 to 15,000 feet. And there are places in which Mont Blanc might be sunk without showing its peak above water. Beyond this, the ascent on the American side commences and gradually leads for about 300 miles to the Newfoundland shore almost the whole of the bottom of this central plain which extends for many hundred miles in a north and south direction is covered by a fine mud which when brought to the surface dries into a greyish white friable substance you can write with this on a blackboard if you are so inclined and to the eye it is quite like very soft greyish chalk examined chemically it proves to be composed almost wholly of carbonate of lime, and if you make a section of it in the same way as that of the piece of chalk was made and view it with the microscope, it presents innumerable globigerinae embedded in a granule matrix. Thus this deep sea mud is substantially chalk. I say substantially because there are a good many minor differences, but as these have no bearing on the question immediately before us, which is the nature of the globigerinae of the chalk, it is unnecessary to speak of them. Globigerinae of every size, from the smallest to the largest, are associated together in the Atlantic mud, and the chambers of many are filled by a soft animal matter. This soft substance is, in fact, the remains of the creature to which the globigerina shell, or rather skeleton, owes its existence, and which is an animal of the simplest imaginable description. It is, in fact, a mere particle of living jelly, without defined parts of any kind, without a mouth, nerves, muscles, or distinct organs. And only manifesting its vitality to ordinary observation by thrusting out and retracting from all parts of its surface long filamentous processes which serve for arms and legs yet this amorphous particle devoid of everything which in the higher animals we call organs is capable of feeding growing and multiplying of separating from the ocean the small proportion of carbonate of lime which is dissolved in seawater and of building up that substance into a skeleton for itself, according to a pattern which can be imitated by no other known agency. The notion that animals can live and flourish in the sea at the vast depths from which apparently living globigerina have been brought up does not agree very well with our usual conceptions respecting the conditions of animal life, and it is not so absolutely impossible as it might at first sight appear to be that the globigerinae of the Atlantic sea-bottom do not live and die where they are found. As I have mentioned, the soundings from the great Atlantic plain are almost entirely made up of globigerinae, with the granules which have been mentioned and some few other calcareous shells but a small percentage of the chalky mud perhaps at most some five per cent of it is of a different nature and consists of shells and skeletons composed of silex or pure flint these silicious bodies belong partly to the lowly vegetable organisms which are called diatomaceae and partly to the minute and extremely simple animals termed radiolaria. It is quite certain that these creatures do not live at the bottom of the ocean but at its surface, where they may be obtained in prodigious numbers by the use of a properly constructed net. Hence it follows that these siliceous organisms, though they are not heavier than the lightest dust, must have fallen in some cases through fifteen thousand feet of water before they reached their final resting place on the ocean floor and considering how large a surface these bodies expose in proportion to their weight it is probable that they occupy a great length of time in making their burial journey from the surface of the atlantic to the bottom but if the radiolaria and the diatoms are thus rained upon the bottom of the sea from the superficial layer of its waters in which they pass their lives. It is obviously possible that the globigerinae may be similarly derived, and if they were so, it would be much more easy to understand how they obtain their supply of food than it is at present. Nevertheless, the positive and negative evidence all points the other way the skeletons of the full-grown deep sea globigerina are so remarkably solid and heavy in proportion to their surface as to seem little fitted for floating and as a matter of fact they are not to be found along with the diatoms and radiolaria in the uppermost stratum of the open ocean it has been observed again that the abundance of globigerino in proportion to other organisms of like kind increases with the depth of the sea, and that the deep-water globigerinae are larger than those which live in shallower parts of the sea. And such facts negative the supposition that these organisms have been swept by currents from the shallows into the deeps of the Atlantic. It therefore seems to be hardly doubtful that these wonderful creatures live and die at the depths in which they are found. Footnote. During the cruise of HMS Bulldog, commanded by Sir Leopold McClintock in 1860, living starfish were brought up clinging to the lowest part of the sounding line from a depth of 1,260 fathoms, midway between Cape Farewell in Greenland and the Rockall Banks, Dr. Waelish ascertained that the sea-bottom at this point consisted of the ordinary roos, and that the stomachs of the starfishes were full of globigerinae. This discovery removes all objections to the existence of living globigerinae at great depths which are based upon the supposed difficulty of maintaining animal life under such conditions. And it throws the burden of proof upon those who object to the supposition that the Globigerinae live and die where they are found. However, the important points for us are that the living Globigerinae are exclusively marine animals, the skeletons of which abound at the bottom of deep seas and that there is not a shadow of reason for believing that the habits of the globigerinae of the chalk differed from those of the existing species. But if this be true, there is no escaping the conclusion that the chalk itself is the dried mud of an ancient deep sea. In working over the soundings collected by Captain Damon, I was surprised to find that many of what I have called the granules of that mud were not, as one might have been tempted to think at first, the mere powder and waste of Globigerinae, but that they had a definite form and size. I termed these bodies coccoliths and doubted their organic nature dr Wallich verified my observation and added the interesting discovery that not unfrequently bodies similar to these coccoliths were aggregated together into spheroids which he termed coccospheres so far as we knew these bodies the nature of which is extremely puzzling and problematical were peculiar to the atlantic soundings but a few years ago Mr Sorby, in making a careful examination of the chalk, by means of thin sections and otherwise, observed, as Ehrenberg had done before him, that much of its granular basis possesses a definite form. Comparing these formed particles with those in the Atlantic soundings, he found the two to be identical, and thus proved that the chalk, like the soundings, contains these mysterious coccoliths and coccospheres. Here was a further and most interesting confirmation from internal evidence of the essential identity of the chalk with modern deep-sea mud. Globigerinae coccoliths and coccospheres are found as the chief constituents of both, and testify to the general similarity of the conditions under which both have been formed. I have recently traced out the development of the coccoliths from a diameter of 1 7000th of an inch up to their largest size which is about 1,000th and no longer doubt that they are produced by independent organisms which, like the Glowbridge arena, live and die at the bottom of the sea End of footnote. the evidence furnished by the hewing facing, and superposition of the stones of the pyramids that these structures were built by men has no greater weight than the evidence that the chalk was built by globigerinae. And the belief that those ancient pyramid builders were terrestrial and air-breathing creatures like ourselves is not better based than the conviction that the chalk-makers lived in the sea. But as our belief in the building of the pyramids by men is not only grounded on the internal evidence afforded by these structures, but gathers strength from multitudinous collateral proofs and is Flinched by the total absence of any reason for a contrary belief, so the evidence drawn from the globigerinae that the chalk is an ancient sea-bottom is fortified by innumerable independent lines of evidence, and our belief in the truth of the conclusion to which all positive testimony tends receives the like negative justification from the fact that no other hypothesis has a shadow of foundation End of section one